Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Moab Music Festival's 30th anniversary season is ongoing right now. It runs through September 16th, and one of the highlights of this season is Sunrise on Turtle Island, Contemporary Native American Voices, which premieres on September 3rd. This includes three world premieres by Native American composers Don Avery, Lara Ortman, and Martha Redbone. And uh, they'll also be performing with Moab Music Festival artists alongside existing works by Jared Tate, who will also be attending and performing, and Louis Ballard, and pianist and conductor Tim Long, uh, is curating Sunrise on Turtle Island. And later in the program, we'll be talking with uh, Don Avery along with Tim Long. And right now, we bring in uh, composer uh, Jared uh, Tate. Uh, thank you for joining us in the program. Nitaki Chukma. It's really nice to be here. Good, good to talk to you. Um, I was afraid that I would <laughs> badly mispronounce your middle name, so I, I didn't say it, but maybe you could say it for us. Yes, I will. I'll introduce myself in my language. Uh, Chukma, Sohos Chifot, Jared Impacha Chaha Tate, Impacha Chaha Chokat Michashawi Iksa, Ishtaun Chololili, Talo Ikbili. Hi, my name is Jared Impacha Chaha Tate, and that's how you pronounce that. And Impacha Chaha is my inherited Chickasaw house name. Ah, so uh, Chickasaw, um, yes. is that in Oklahoma? Yes, sir. Yes, we uh, we are originally from the Mississippian and Tennessee area, and we were relocated to Oklahoma in the 1830s. And that is our home now, along with 39 other federally recognized tribes in the state of Oklahoma. So uh, your name means, I'm reading from your bio here, his high corn crib. What What are we talking about there? Yes, sir. Uh, well, uh, a raised corn crib is literally like a thatched hut that's raised on stilts that you store vegetables that you keep from animals from forage, being able to forage. So it's kind of a functional looking, but that, that was actually part of our culture, our structures in our towns that we lived in in the past. And so high corn crib is, is one of the, the several house names that we still have in existence in our tribe. So I'm interested how you got into uh, classical music, and it, you're 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 fusing the you know these, these styles, right? But what um, what, yeah. what brought you into music first place and classical music? Well, you know, this music and art came from both sides of my family. My father, Charles, is Chickasaw Indian from Oklahoma, and Dad professionally was a tribal lawyer and and judge. Um, but he was all he is also a classically trained pianist and baritone. So my Chickasaw father was playing and singing classical repertoire in the house when I was a kid. And he started me on, on the piano. And my mother, Patricia, um, who was Manx, so I'm Manx and Chickasaw. My mother was Manx from um, Nebraska, was a, a choreographer and dancer. And so I grew up in an enormous amount of musical theater, uh, opera, ballet, and just I was just very raised in American theater, actually. And so that was a lot of my exposure, of course, along with being very saturated in our tribal music and culture at the same time. And it wasn't until later in my 20s that I actually started to compose. I, I just focused on the piano for a long time. But when my dad started me on the piano, I, I had announced my, my family very quickly that I was to be a concert pianist. Hmm. Uh, so early ambition, yeah. Well, that's, that's, yes, that's right. I was very focused. And then when I started composing, my focus became clear yet again. And I knew that I wanted to focus on American Indian composition very specifically. And that's exactly what I do. That's my life passion. My mission is to represent you know, culture, history, and ethos of North American Indians. And, and so I, I focus on legends and stories. And I also um, write many works in our different native languages, um, and that's something that um, I'm very 
very proud of. I, I love bringing our language to the concert stage for the world to hear. I want to talk about all of that, but I want to back up. So a house full of sure. Broadway and uh, Native uh, music. How, how was yes. that? <laughs> I guess broad, 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 kind of Broadway. I mean, it was, like, it was, it was more classical ballet and everything. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, that's just basically, you know, I mean, I was, I'm a, an American Indian born in 1968. And so what that means, I was born into a world that was saturated with all kinds of exposure to different things, and especially in the United States. I mean, we, we, are, we are American. We're very, very mixed here. So, um, so early on, I was, you know, exposed to everything that the, really the world had to offer. And that's just only increased over time. I mean, my gosh, all of our kids that are born in Indian country right now, the access they have and the knowledge that they have of everything that goes on around the world is really quite remarkable. So, you know, we don't, we don't live in a frozen time back in the, you know, the 16 and 1700s. I mean, American Indians are very modern folks and are very knowledgeable about what's going on in the world. And I was just beautifully blessed um, to be a recipient of that knowledge and awareness of just everything that was around me and everything that was available, honestly. Um, I mean, if you look at a, you know, Amer- a contemporary American Indian visual artists, I mean, their paintings are extremely modern and they are very, very aware of their historic colleagues from all over the world. And so we are very informed people in all the things that we do artistically. Since we're more and more interconnected, you you made reference to that. Mm -hmm. Is there a danger there that uh, all cultures kind of get subsumed into an overall popular culture? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, there's so many different ways to express yourself that I don't think anybody is really in danger. In fact, I think it's very exciting to see all of the ways in which every human is who they are. And so, you know, I mean, there's, there's as many ways to be human as, as there are people on the planet, and there are many ways to be indigenous as there are indigenous people on the planet. So it's, it's kind of the same thing. And, and this has been going on for quite some time. I mean, you know, uh, ancient art was modern art at the time, and people were influenced by each other's neighbors constantly. And so humans have been affecting each other, influencing each other, and, and beautifully interacting with each other for, for, you know, since we've existed. So I just kind of see this as just another, you know, stage in our human development. But I, to me, it doesn't threaten my identity at all. And I don't see any danger. In fact, I see a lot of excitement. And I love, love seeing all of the new creative output that comes from our, from our, our, our youth in Indian country. It's really exciting. Mm. You say you're, you're uh, composing uh, works in native languages. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, some languages are in danger, right? Others, I guess, are flourishing. <laughs> Yes, yes. And, you know, that's a problem around the world. There's a lot of languages that are kind of in their 11th hour in many ways. And one thing that's really neat is actually technology that we have because there's been well that mixed with just a general cultural revival around the world. Um, for endangered cultures and languages, um, well, this this is really happening. And so people are becoming adult learners of their language. I am one of them. My son speaks more Chickasaw than I did when I was uh, growing up. And so uh, there's there's a lot of really good silver lining aspects happening as a result of something that is actually, you know, uh, scary, you know, to lose something. But um, folks in Indian country are rising to the occasion, and we are having lots of cultural explosion in language, music, culture, traditions, and everything. And of course, that's paired with being modern people. So it's a really, really, um, I guess, robust time with these revitalizations of our culture. You say your son uh, speaks more Chickasaw than you did. How does that happen? Yes. The, the formal programs or what? What's happening there? Uh, well, 
It's 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 a it's a mix of things. Uh, first of all, I'm teaching it to him, and mm-hmm. also uh, we have much more of our own language available as curriculum. I mean, tribes are actually creating their own language curriculums for their own people. We can actually take lessons online if we're not like right in the hub of Ada, Oklahoma, you know, which is like kind of our hub of the Chickasaw Nation. Well, I'm in Oklahoma City. Well, I can still attend classes online. Um, And there's many, actually, lots of uh, uh, Native college kids will take online classes of their own language as their foreign language requirement credit. It's really, really cool. But many, many uh, native languages are having revitalization programs. And so there's, there's actually immersion programs that happen locally. There are online programs that happen. We are publishing lessons in our own languages that are distributed and sold and given out to tribal members. It's really, really exciting. So there's, there's a lot of positive, um, I guess, reaction to to that concern, you know, and so actually there's like, that's why I say there's a lot of adult learners. This is happening all over the world. Uh, When I was uh, traveling to New Zealand, I met many Maori adults who were learning their language as adults and becoming fluent as adults. It's really, really exciting. Uh, So when you were, uh, you you said you knew early on you wanted to be a a classical pianist and set out uh, to to do that. Tell me a little bit about that journey and then how that uh, morphed into composing and then composing, you know, um, yeah. in, in indigenous themes. Well, sure, absolutely. Well, I, I did go to college as a piano major at Northwestern University um, in Chicago. And so then I started my degree at the Cleveland Institute of Music, and that's when my mother had approached me. Uh, she was creating a new ballet. Mom was teaching at the University of Wyoming, and she wanted to create a ballet that was based on, um, you know, aboriginal themes from the area that were relevant to to uh, people from that, that area. And so she uh, wanted to do a ballet that was based on American Indian stories from the northern plains and Rockies. And she just turned to me, and she's like, well, you're my Chickasaw pianist son. You can write the score. And so she uh, she offered to commission a score for me. And I'll get it. I told her no at first. It really just kind of knocked me over. I was like, I can't. I mean, the, the, I just felt like, wow, I'd grown up with these incredible ballets of Stravinsky and Tchaikovsky and Prokofiev. And of course, then she was asking me to, you know, obviously blend, you know, uh, different cultures. And I just, I didn't know if I was up to the task. I mean, you know, people like Dennis and Wheelock and Lewis Ballard had, had already done that. Um, and very successfully, they're, they're Oneida and, uh, and the Cherokee composers. And um, so I just really had to think about it. But it just, she, mom, in a really beautiful and innocent way, was asking me to be all of who I am at the exact same time. And that is a classical American Indian person classically trained American Indian person. And so uh, I, I grabbed it and ran with it. And so we did a ballet um, and had Rodney Grant as our narrator, which is really fun. He was one of the actors from Dances with Wolves. And we toured it around Wyoming and South Dakota um, into the native communities up in those two states. And it was it just completely altered my life. And so I went back to the Cleveland Institute of Music and I talked to Donald Erb, and I asked if I could add composition to my degree because I told him, I said, I want to do this right. I want to do this well and train with an excellent uh, composition teacher. And so he accepted me into the program. And so then that's when I announced to my family that I was to be a Chickasaw classical composer. And so I immediately started doing the Bartok thing. I was transcribing music from my own tribe and from other tribes and working all of that in as a new language and ethos. I talk about my ethos that I, that I work with in my music. And that, that was, and I just was, it was just like an explosion. It was like a sunburst. And I was 
just really grateful to have that opportunity. And very shortly after that, I was commissioned by the National Symphony Orchestra to write a work. And I decided then that that was my opportunity to write a piece entirely in the Chickasaw language and have performed with a chorus. And so we performed that work in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center. And that was entirely in the Chickasaw language. That very piece is about to be performed in Carnegie Hall on next June 3rd, 2023. And so I'm able to have the Chickasaw language presented on the world stage for the entire world to hear. This program in particular that we're doing here in in Moab uh, features a Ponca legend of Standing Bear, who was a very, very important Ponca leader. And this work is in Ponca and English. Yeah, so that, so uh, Standing Bear is the one to be performed in, in Moab then? Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah, that's what is being performed on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Um, yeah. you, I want you to expand on this. this. This struck me, this phrase. You said your mother was encouraging you in her own way to be all of you at the same time. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, it's really funny because in the classical world, uh, we're surrounded by repertoire in which the composers were completely um, infusing their ethnicity and national identity into their compositions. And, you know, the Russian composers are a very good example of that. So when you look at composers like Prokofiev and Shostakovich and Tchaikovsky and Mazursky and Stravinsky, and, um, and they were all very focused on using Russian folk melodies, legends, Russian legends. I mean, you want to talk about ethos. They were completely focused on the feeling of being Russian in their classical works. And boy, what a beautiful example. You know, another really great example was Debussy. I mean, you couldn't be more French as a composer than Debussy was. And, you know, Tor Takamitsu was a Japanese composer. You couldn't be more Japanese in your symphonic compositions than he was. It's really, really quite inspiring to hear all that. But also, Louis Ballard had been doing this for, for a while. And Louis Ballard was cropped Quapon Cherokee from Oklahoma, and he was doing something very similar, and he was also very clear that he was also inspired by those same composers, like Bartok and Stravinsky, that they were incorporated in all of their their folk melodies from their people and their ethnicities, and creating languages that were, you know, completely derived from their origins. And so, and of course, this happens in all the fine arts. In filmmaking, you see it today. Everybody is putting in their identity, their ethnicities, their nationalities, whatever it is, wherever they came from, their kind of personal indigeneity, they're putting it into all of their expressions of art. So this has been going on for quite some time. But for some reason, I just didn't see earlier on um, any kind of a marriage between my Chickasaw identity and my training as a classical composer. And when my mom had presented this, that's what I realized that I had this opportunity to express all of who I am at the exact same time. And wh- how are these pieces received? What uh, what does that do for the audience, do you think? Well, fortunately, um, the work that I'm doing is received with great positivity and support. And, you know, I'm, I mean... I mean what I'm doing in a way that's supportive of my community and in homage to my community. I, I'm writing for my people, and I, I wish for my tribal members and my Indian cousins from other tribes to feel elevated when they see their legends and hear their language expressed on a concert stage in a very dramatic and, and larger-than-life fashion. And, I, and so my intent is to elevate and help tribal members feel elevated. And so far, that, that seems to be working 
quite well, and I'm, I'm very proud to do that. And so fortunately, I get a lot of support from both the Native community and the classical community. Hmm. I'd like to play just a little bit from, uh, from Standing Bear. That's okay. Sure. Um, so, uh, we'll just play the first couple of minutes here. This is a recording found on uh, on YouTube. Anything you want to do to, to set this up? Well, yeah, Standing Bear was a very important tribal leader of the Ponca during their removal um, in the 1800s um, from the Nebraska area to Oklahoma. And so Standing Bear was one of the leaders that helped his community survive that relocation. And so uh, he's just a very important figure to the tribe. And this piece is written as the baritone soloist is kind of like the spirit of Standing Bear reflecting on his life in his leadership at that time in Indian country. This is uh, composed in, uh, the language is Ponca, is it? It is in in both Ponca and English. Uh, Ponca and English, okay. Well, let's just hear the, the first couple of minutes. Um, it's about a half hour long composition. Let's hear the first uh, couple of minutes here. That's just the first couple of minutes. Uh, you can find this on YouTube, and uh, even better, uh, go and see it performed live. That's uh, before on Saturday, right? Yes, correct. Um, so, uh, just it's it's always uh, fun to to either go live or see this, uh, you know, visually on YouTube. The the opening notes, I uh, saw the pianist uh, reaching into the piano to get to get that <laughs> yes, the resonant right. sound there. Yes, that's right. It's right. It's you know, it's a dramatic sound that that sets a, again a very very focused and serious ethos. At the at in this first tableau of the of the, the work, uh, Standing Bear is actually speaking to his son, um, and unfortunately, his son died at the age of fifteen of tuberculosis when they were removed to Oklahoma. And his son had asked him uh, for, uh, to take his body back and bury him in their original homeland, and Standing Bear did that, and that was him 
speaking to his son after his son had passed and saying, we are going home. And so he had had a lifetime homage of honoring his son by doing that. And that was pretty intense. So that, that all that whole orchestration and his kind of recitative, um, just kind of holding one note passage just shows that focus that he had that was really, really quite remarkable. I can't imagine walking my own child across the plains back home to a grave. That's pretty intense. And he did stuff like that. And that's, he was quite a remarkable man. So that's an opportunity for you to go to the Moab Music Festival and to uh, to experience this standing bear punk Indian cantata. As for baritone solo, a string sextet, and, and piano. And uh, this is a part, I should say, of a uh, whole uh, uh, concert, which features three world premieres by Native American composers, uh, existing yes. works there by uh, Jared Tate, and also uh, music by Lewis Ballard as well. Uh, so you yes. find out all of this at moabmusicfest.org, moabmusicfest.org, and there's a lot going on, and it, uh, the, the festival runs through September 16th. Just a couple of minutes uh, left here. Uh, so that's Cantata. You, you've uh, composed operas as well, right? I'm actually in the middle of my first major opera. Ah. Um, I'm composing an opera entitled Shell Shaker, which is, um, is sung entirely in the Chickasaw language, and that is premiering in Massachusetts in February. And Shell Shaker is an opera. It's a hero story about one of our really important legends of how we acquired our shell shakers as our primary percussion. Our, we are shell shaking um, people, and that's, that's a certain sound that we have in our music. So anyway, I have this opportunity to compose an opera about this this young girl who... Uh, finds herself and finds culture and brings it back to the tribe. This is an ancient story that dates back thousands of years. And so, yeah, so Shell Shaker will be premiering at Mount Holyoke University, which is part of the UMass Amherst College system, conducted by Tina Hui Ung. And we have three American Indian soloists um, premiering um, in the major leads of the opera, which I'm really, really happy about. Well, it sounds exciting. Yeah. What, uh, what's, what else is on the horizon? What have, what have you uh, hoped to do but haven't done yet? <laughs> well, you know, actually, that's part. That's one of the, the first opera of an opera trilogy that I'm composing, and so those will be coming down the pike here over the next few years. But um, I've got some uh, great opportunities that I'm composing for uh, Turtle Island String Quartet, uh, Room Full of Teeth. Um, I'm premiering a new work um, with uh, Pro Music uh, uh, Seattle um, here in, in March as well, and I've just got a great lineup of I've, I've got a harp concerto for Florida Orchestra, working on a new commission for the Oklahoma City Philharmonic, and um, just all, lots of residencies that I've got around the country. And so I'm just very fortunate, I'm very busy, very, very grateful for this work to be able to express all of this. Well, come to the Moab Music Festival on Saturday to uh, see uh, Standing Bear. Uh, performed by J- Jared Tate, the composer. It's part of a, oh, looks like a very uh, wonderful concert. Uh, includes three world premieres by Native American composers, along with existing mm-hmm. music. And you can find Jared Tate at jaredtate.com. Jared Tate, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Chukmashki, yakoke. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, coming up, we will be talking with uh, pianist and conductor Tim Long. Uh, he's curating uh, this world premiere, Sunrise on uh, Turtle Island, and uh, later on we'll hear one of the composers involved, Don Avery, and we'll have uh, more following this break. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are previewing uh, the Moab Music Festival's 30th anniversary season. Uh, previews may be the wrong word. It's already ongoing, but it's running through September 16th. One of the highlights of this season is Sunrise on Turtle Island, Contemporary Native American Voices, which premieres on Saturday and includes uh, three world premieres by Native American composers Don Avery, Laura Ortman, and Martha Redbone, alongside existing works by Jared Tate and Louis Ballard. And pianist and conductor Timothy Long is curating Sunrise on Turtle Island. He uh, joins us now. Timothy Long, uh, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, so before we get into this, um, it sounds like an exciting premiere here, uh, three world premieres as part of this concert. Uh, tell me a little about, about yourself, your background. Well, I um, grew up in southeastern Oklahoma. I am half Muscogee Creek and half Choctaw. And I'm also from a Tupacco tribal town, of, um, which is connected to the Muscogee Nation. So I, I've lived in New York State for a, quite a while now, and I'm currently the music director of opera at the Eastman School of Music. And I'm an active conductor, mostly opera, but I do all things, and I, I perform on the piano as well. Uh, tell me a little bit about how uh, that journey, uh, Native American background of, into classical music and opera. Well, you know, a lot of people, you know, have asked me in my lifetime, uh, how how does an Indian like you get into classical music? And I always say, you know, it it came from being native that I got into it. My mother uh, grew up in, uh, you know, one of the uh, American versions of the Canadian uh, residential schools. She grew up in the Goodland Orphanage in southeastern Oklahoma, and caught tuberculosis when she was in high school. So she was then sent, this is before treatment existed, so she was sent to an, a federally run Indian sanatorium for a total of five years quarantined. And in this time, she said, everybody listened to country and Western music. She got sick of the twang, and she found a classical station. So when my sister and I were born, the only thing we ever heard was um, Beethoven. And then we went to uh, Muscogee Creek Church called Salt Creek, and, and I heard my first live piano there by my babysitter, Hetty Long, and I would watch her and listen to her, and so it all started through that. Well, that's a fascinating story. Yeah, this was, this was an antidote to the country and western that she was listening to. <laughs> that's great. Oh, yeah, completely. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I have enjoyed some country and western uh -huh. in my life, but uh, classical has been it for me. Yeah. So you grew up with classical music playing then? I did, you know, uh, it, it's so strange because, you know, just listening to those records when I was a small child, I guess my ears started gravitating towards that music. And I began piano lessons when I was five years old, and I had a 15-year-old teacher. I was her very first student, and she didn't quite know how to start me, so she started me on music theory before I could read, which I think was brilliant in the end. And I, I just, I became obsessed with classical music, even from a really, really young age, and I would say I still am. Mm. I mean, it really dominates my life. Who are some of your favorite composers? Oh my gosh, that's a difficult question. But um, I, I tend to love whatever I'm doing, because I, I really commit to everything. But as I get further and further into late middle age, I can go back to the basics of Mozart and Bach. They're just brilliant. And I I have 
I have a very a fortunate career. I just conducted Le Nozze di Figaro, um, Mozart's opera in Prague this past summer, in the only existing theater where Mozart himself conducted. So you walk into the pit, and there's actually a plaque where he stood. So I, I get to, you know, communicate with these heroes of mine. And, you know, and later spring, I'm doing a concert in Philadelphia, all geared towards Bach's legacy, so meaning J.S. Bach and his... Uh, Sons, and I will be with the or- uh, Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia, where I'll be conducting and playing harpsichord concertos. Mm. Uh, I, I, I got chills on the back of my neck just uh, visualizing that uh, being in the same pit where Mozart actually conducted. Oh, it's incredible! I, yeah, and I've conducted there three times, but I tell you, every time you walk into that theater, you do get the chills. You even like sit outside the back door and you think oh my gosh mozart walked through these doors you've rehearsed in the rehearsal space with the orchestra and you think oh my god it's just you can't there's nothing to describe it because it's just so extreme in its greatness and leonardo di figaro is one of the great masterpieces of western music so i i was just thrilled to do it again mm. I'm reading in your bio that uh, you're producer, writer, and host of a podcast discussing race and music, yeah. Unequal Temperament. Tell me about the podcast. Well, you know, we we did it for a year. We're on hiatus right now. We're coming back. It is a podcast um, uh, that is produced by the Foundry Arts in New York City, and they wanted to do something on race and music, more, more focused on classical music, but, you know, it's it's going beyond that. And... Uh, they they kind of they approached me about doing it because you know I clean up well on the radio I think but in my private life I tend to be pretty blunt and um, I tend to say whatever I think and they thought well maybe Tim should do it so you know we we got together some ideas and I I have I think nine shows in the first season and we explore a lot of things I talk with. Um, uh, you know, wonderful native artists. I, I speak with uh, many people of color, the great uh, tenor Russell Thomas. I even did a show, which I just love, and I think it's a big deal on the doctrine of discovery. Do you know that, the doctrine I, of discovery? I don't, no. Well, it was a, is a, a Catholic document, one of the papal bulls that was uh, brought out in the late 1400s, and is still in existence, and it states that White Christian man, men have domain over over brown non-Christians throughout the world and basically gives them permission to take their land and everything that they have. And this is still in existence. It was uh, used in the Supreme Court, was it in the early 1800s? And so it's not used these days, but of course what happens when you cite it in a case, then people come back to cite the case itself. So the doctrine of discovery was was indirectly used as recently as 2005 in a case against the Oneida Nation, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was actually the one who cited that case to fight the Oneidas. And there are books about it. And I interviewed this wonderful man named Stephen Newcomb in California who has written a couple of books about it. He's got the Latin memorized. He's protested. There are protests for the Catholic Church to take this, the Vatican, to take this down, and it hasn't been successful yet. But that is one of my favorite shows, because I think that is one of the, the keys to racism, at least in America, if not throughout the world. I want to talk to you about uh, your involvement in uh, 
one of the exciting parts of your job, I'm sure, must be uh, you know premieres, right? Uh, so I want to start with oh, you in your bio. You you talk about a uh, conducting world premiere of Missing, a new work by Marie Clements and, yeah. and Brian Current about uh, missing uh, Indigenous women in Canada. Tell me about that. Well, my gosh, I was so fortunate to meet these people, and I did a workshop for them. I think it was in early seventeen, and um, it's it's a Canadian production, and it's about the four thousand missing Indigenous women in British Columbia. So it's centered around Vancouver, north of Vancouver, on a highway called the Highway of Tears, and it is in about I think about fifteen percent of the opera is in the Gitsan language, which is a tribe that is local to that area, and it's about a 90-minute power-packed chamber opera with a half-Indigenous cast, and it, it is, you know, when people ask me my favorite operas these, day, uh, these days, I say Le Nozze di Figaro and Missing, because Missing represents a story that is never, ever heard, and I tell you, whenever we did this, we did a Canadian, we, we did the Canadian premiere in... 2017, uh, uh, Pacific Opera Victoria and City Opera Vancouver. In 2019, we did a Canadian tour, um, and we're doing the American premiere in March at Anchorage Opera. And wherever we go, we do private performances for victims' families who have never seen their story represented. And I tell you, from about the first minute, you start hearing sobs, and they don't stop until the end. Mm -hmm. In the end, it's an uplifting story because the people in the opera become activists for this cause. And you see the sparrows, thousands and thousands of sparrows released into the air, which represent the souls of the Native women. That must be quite the... So there's a public performance, but you do do these private performances. So that must be very popular. Yes, we yes. always start with one private performance mm -hmm. for, for these people, and then we open it up to the public. And in Canada, at least, we've always done traditional smudging, offering people ceremonial things so they don't leave with this energy in their systems as they leave the theater. Because it's important to think about these things, but, you know, it can also um, take you in, in a bad direction. It can leave you with only guilt or leave you with anger, and that's not the way we move forward. Mm. Uh, so uh, this is exciting. You're you're involved with world premieres here in uh, Moab, but uh, tell me about um, Sunrise and Turtle Island and, and curating this. Well, you know, it's great to be back in Moab. I was here in 2013, and um, I've been I've been doing this for a while, music for a long time. And I first met Michael Barrett, um, who's uh, the music director of the festival. In 1997, we worked on an opera together. And we keep circling back into each other's lives. And he asked me about doing a program here. And we talked about it being native and then having premieres, which is perfect. And so, you know, I kind of know a lot of the native musicians around who are at least in the classical realm. And so I thought of a list of people immediately and reached out to them. And then I thought, you know, what's this? going to be called and because it's got it needs to be something that represents natives a bit and turtle island is sort of a story that circulates around a lot of tribes that north america is actually in the shape of a turtle and 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 it and it sits on the water here so we reference that as turtle island 
And I thought it's got to be something positive as well because there's so much negativity in the world. And I think this is a great time for Native people. I mean, we have people like Sterling Harjo, who's from my hometown and same tribe, who, who has reservation dogs on Hulu on FX. We have Joy Harjo, also from my tribe, who was the first Native American U.S. poet laureate. We have Deb Holland. We have a lot of pol- politicians out there having success. We just had a Navajo guy, Raven Chacon, win the Pulitzer Prize this year for composition. So I just think it's a really great time for Native people and our visibility. And so I thought a sunrise is perfect. So Sunrise on Turtle Island became the title. We got these great composers to write commissions for it. And then Jared, you know, as you heard, is so busy that he's got so much on his plate that it's hard to get compositions out really quickly. So we invited him to do an existing piece, the Standing Bear Cantata. And I think it's going to be a powerful show. Yeah, it sounds uh, sounds like a wonderful uh, opportunity for people to come and hear some uh, some brand new music. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, the process. Were, were you in the process of, of commissioning these pieces? Yes. And and I'm doing a lot of commissions right now. So so we define the parameters of the pieces, you know, the, because, of course, you know, everybody needs to get paid for it. This is what they do for a living. So you come up with parameters of what you want in terms of time, in terms of how many instruments you can write for, um, deadlines, and all of that stuff. So I was involved with Moab and coming coming up with those guidelines, and then we present them to the composers, and they either accept or they don't. And everybody was excited to accept this time around, so I was thrilled about that. But other commissions that are happening, um, I have, we have a great one happening at the Eastman School of Music in December, and uh, it's, we're just passing Eastman's centennial, and they're, they came out with a lot of commissions. This is the final commission. And they came up to me and said, well, how would you feel about um, commissioning a Native opera at Eastman? I thought, well, that's a great idea, except we have no Native singers, and you can't do that without Native singers. So I thought, you know, I've always loved the idea of having a sort of Native American leap in portrait. And if you don't know that piece, it's by Aaron Copeland, Mm -hmm. and it used um, the words of Lincoln. And it's a very inspiring piece. It travels all over the country, and they use local politicians to utter the words of Lincoln. It's about 10 to 15 minutes. So I thought, wouldn't it be fabulous if we had that? And the dean at Eastman went along with it, and I thought, that's fantastic. So I contacted Anthony Davis, who is a a multiracial, even part indigenous, composer from California who won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize. Um, and then I contacted Joy Harjo, who was then the U.S. Poet Laureate, and luckily I knew her just from meeting her in Oklahoma, and said, would you be interested in writing text for this? And they both accepted. So Joy is compiling Haudenosaunee text, because that's the land we're on in Rochester, and then she's writing a re- refrain for this, and we're going to have the world premiere in December with the Eastman Philharmonia. I'll be conducting, and Joy will be the first narrator. Um, beyond that, my father-in-law and I have started a foundation that is geared towards raising money for uh, Native American music scholarships in schools and in coming out with commissions for composers. And our first project is called the North American Indigenous Songbook. Uh, so we're in the middle of commissions right now. We have eight fantastic composers lined up, including Raven, who is this year's Pulitzer Prize winner. And 
You know, in 2020, when Black Lives Matter happened, I had so many people reach out to me saying, where can I find music composed uh, by Native Americans? And, and mainly in the classical realm, because that's where I work. And there is music. There just wasn't much vocal music, because I do conduct opera. And so the whole aim of this first project is to create a songbook, songs that anyone can sing without fear of appropriation, some of them maybe in tribal languages or in English, um, and they'll be with piano or up to three instruments. And so we have contracts out, and we hope to have our first uh, set of songs by the end of December, and we're going to be doing commissions um, hopefully annually from here on out. Well, that sounds wonderful. Wonderful. Um, I, I love the idea of a of, of a native Lincoln portrait. That's that's. I'm oh, glad, you're, glad you're doing. Glad you're doing that. Yeah. Let's take a wait. let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back uh, with more with uh, Timothy Long, and uh, we're trying to reach uh, composer Don Avery. Hopefully, we'll, we'll reach her as well for this last segment, a brief last segment. Uh, let's uh, have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have about five minutes left in uh, the program today. And we're talking with Timothy Long, who's pianist and conductor. He curated uh, an exciting uh, event, concert, uh, which is uh, coming up on Saturday at the Moab Music Festival, Sunrise on Turtle Island, Contemporary Native American Voices. That includes three world premieres by Native American composers Don Avery, Lara Ortman, and Martha Redbone, alongside existing works by Jared Tate and uh, Louis uh, Ballard. Um, so before the break, uh, Timothy Long, you were you were talking about um, commissioning uh, work, getting more vocal uh, works uh, in this indigenous space with classical and and, uh, and Native American um, music. Um, you talked about uh, people could access this music without fear of appropriation, because that is a concern. So that this is a yeah. problem you're trying to alleviate. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in our songbook, we're gonna we're gonna come out with a statement about appropriation, what it is and what it isn't. And I, I want to assure people when these songs come out that anybody can do them. In fact, I would love to see these pieces become ubiquitous in music schools and on concert stages everywhere. Hmm. I want to talk about. Um, I always like to ask uh, performers. Um, um, uh, about uh, favorite venues and, and especially about when things go wrong. That's there, there's usually a good story. Do you, do you have such a story and, and how you overcame that? Oh my God. Well, you know, I would say when things go wrong, it was usually my fault because uh -huh. uh, I I never had goals in life. I, I music was always a very private thing to me, and I've been obsessed with it since I was a small child. So. I was always pretty much in the moment with it and I, I would, and I still, I just sort of like, you know, see what opportunities are in front of me and I decide whether to do them or not, as opposed to having a long range goal, which is probably better. Um, but I don't do it. And so I was after school, I moved to New York city and I was working in opera as a pianist and coach, which, you know, I love, because I, I, I don't know, I love singers. They have these big personalities, and I was always an introvert. So I love being around these big personalities. And, you know, so much in life, not just music, but in life, is perception. How do people perceive you? And I used to work on a lot of really difficult contemporary scores, and because I did them well, people perceived me as being someone who could conduct. Well... 
I couldn't. So I, I made my uh, – I did my first conducting in a ch- uh, Cherokee story in Oklahoma in a piece called Mountain Wind Song. It was fine. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing, but it was a small venue. Um, and then I, I did my first official opera at Yale University, Yale Opera, uh, a German piece called The Kaiser from Atlantis by Victor Ullmann. I had beginner's luck. Went very well. And then I got another gig. Mind you, I never asked for these gigs. <laughs> People perceived me as being able to do them so that they would throw them at me. And then I was asked to, for my second opera, and I'd never studied conducting, to conduct Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress. <laughs> and I thought, well, why not? The first went well. I can do this. And I showed up, and I tell you, Igor Stravinsky showed me exactly what I didn't know I didn't know. I, I'm surprised they didn't fire me. I could fill a book with things that I learned on that gig of what not to do. And I love teaching these days because I tell all my students that I've made every mistake you could make, and I've made them in public. Therefore, I know how to prepare you. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing is I know how to prepare people psychologically, because this is a really difficult you know, art form. And I had my share of disasters. I don't think we ever had to stop, but it's kind of shocking that I never had to stop. And now it's all fun. You know, I don't know, because when every disaster happens and you realize, well, life just keeps going on, then you kind of lose that fear, you know? So I, I, I try to just sort of instill that in, in all of my students, too, that, you know, this is really for us because an audience can't enjoy it unless we enjoy it. And um, I don't know that I've had major disasters apart from my own, you know, although I've had people not show up on stage while I'm in the pit conducting and, uh, you know, uh, just silence on stage for two minutes. It happened this summer in Prague where somebody forgot their entrance and we're just waiting, waiting, waiting. It happened in another Mozart opera that I was doing. Luckily, I was playing the recits on the forte piano, so I just sort of started improvising a big solo until somebody could retrieve the singer and get them to stage. Mm. That's yeah. I always love to hear those stories, and I, I love that uh, that attitude. It's you turn failure around, and you can you can teach off it, teach resilience about it, right? Yeah. Um, well, you can certainly let it crush you, or you but, can let um, it crush you. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, you can let it crush you. Not, but honestly, uh, I, I've never felt like I've had options. It's like it's music. Yeah, I never even made the decision to go into music. It is music for me, yeah. so it's not like I could quit and go into something else. Well, we'll uh, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. Um, and uh, Timothy Long has been our guest in this part of the program. He curated this world premiere. It's uh, called "Sunrise on Turtle Island: Contemporary Native American Voices." That premieres on Saturday, uh, and includes three world premieres by Native American composers, along with uh, existing works by Native American composers. And there's much else happening this season, Moab Music Festival. You go to moabmusicfest.com to learn about that. You can learn about Timothy Long at timothylongmusic.com. Timothy Long, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Many cultures, one sky. 
Got to watch your UT here as we look into the sky. Dateline Cape Canaveral. NASA engineers are zeroing in on the issues that led to the rescheduling of the Monday launch of the Artemis mission. They're gearing up for another attempt on Saturday. NASA said that a critical process to cool down the repurposed space shuttle engines that power the massive space launch system are, uh, well, hmm, that's interesting. I, I didn't know they were using shuttle engines. Hmm, I see them in the photos now. And, Researching a bit more, I see that the SLS rocket uses four liquid-fueled engines which flew on the space shuttle before being refurbished and upgraded as well as a pair of solid rocket boosters. NASA technicians believe a faulty temperature sensor in one of the four engines was the cause of the problem and are working on a solution in time to be ready for a two-hour launch window that happens Saturday about 12:17. Hopefully the weather will comply. And way, way out in space, astronomers believe that they have found the star-making area at the Milky Way's heart for the first time. Astronomers have reconstructed the history of star formation at the center of the Milky Way for the first time, finding what the Big Bang Theory already states, that starbirth radiated outward from the galaxy's heart. Beautiful. And back in the comfort of our own solar system around our own life-giving star... That star is getting frisky again as three solar flares produced radio blackouts and dazzling auroras. You can check the Skywatcher site for an image of the sun captured on August 29th showing a whopper of a solar flare. High solar activity was observed in the days before this and could ignite a geomagnetic storm which could give minor impacts to satellite operations, mess with grids, and give us a simple reminder that nature is in charge, not technology. Some sky watchers in the northern hemisphere have been treated to brilliant auroras thanks to the flare's coronal mass ejection interacting with the Earth's atmosphere. Hmm, well that's what an aurora is. The auroras are visible as far south as Scotland, Alberta, and Montana. And looking with our own eyes, looking up, Scorpius lies down after dark and the moon walks across it. It's very low on the south there. As you look up, you can see Antares and uh, Beta Scorpii if you can get out the telescope. Jupiter shines high in the southeast by 10, just about as big and bright as you can get with the moons in a different configuration every time you look. An hour earlier, Saturn reaches a good observing height, and the rings are fun to look at as well. Late these summer evenings, Formal Hot, the blue lonely star, makes its appearance above the southeast horizon below Saturn. Many cultures, one sky on the eastern seaboard of the United States of America. The people who designed the model for the Constitution, the Iroquois, their creation myth. Long before the world was created, there was an island floating in the sky upon which the sky people lived. They lived quietly and happily. No one ever died or was born or experienced sadness. However, one day, one of the Sky Women realized she was going to give birth to twins. She told her husband, who flew into a rage. In the center of the island, there was a tree which gave light to the entire island, since the sun had not been created. He tore up this tree, creating a huge hole in the middle of the island. Curiously, the woman peered through the hole. Far below, she could see the waters that covered the earth. At that moment, her husband pushed her. She fell through the hole, tumbling toward the waters below. Water animals already existed on Earth so far below the floating island. Two birds saw the Sky Woman fall. Just before she reached the waters, they caught her on their backs and brought her to the other animals. They saved her. So look up, look around, and get lost in space and have a little bit of hope. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and streaming live at upr.org.